Hi, everyone. Today, me and Hellevorn are going to be talking about a new novelette that I'm working on, which is about one of our flawed characters, who is none other than the Dean, Benjamin Cox. So the Dean has uh, undergone a lot of development recently, and uh, you have been working on, uh, on a novelette, and uh, there are so many new things that we get to learn about the Dean here and really see his perspective. And uh, his personality shines through, and we also get to hear about uh, his childhood and what he has experienced there. So uh, how has the Dean changed recently? since our last discussion. I think the Dean is now more multidimensional and he isn't just an antagonist. When he was initially conceived, I think the Dean wasn't supposed to be a deep character or you know, even complex. He was just supposed to be one of Sam's many obstacles. <laughs> but now you know that the people around Sam have become more diverse and more three-dimensional, the Dean has also joined the ranks of one of the more complex characters in my work, Sam New York, I would say. He is, you know, very different from most of the characters in that he is a very jaded, and I would say in, a guy with many incongruencies. He appears to be someone who is deeply moralistic and very judgmental, but in reality, he is just really, I guess, a very broken man who struggles to find meaning in many things. So his uh, views on religion have also developed and expanded a lot since uh, since we last talked about him. Because I remember we were uh, comparing him to my character Edgar as a uh, as a conservative person, very much so. But now it did not seem to me that he was really as conservative, and it seemed rather that he is searching his own path, his own uh, approach to religion rather than simply following rules. Although he does have a, a good relationship with rules, doesn't he? Especially since he also followed this, this path in life of uh, uh, well, a degree in law. So uh, how, what can you tell us about his uh, religious beliefs? So the Dean, he was raised, um, I, he was raised Presbyterian. And his father was a very strict pastor who was unfortunately very hypocritical as well. And this has led the Dean to question traditional Presbyterianism or any form of Protestant Christianity. For many years, he and his wife attended a Presbyterian church just because it was what they were used to. But then afterwards he was like, you know, maybe we should try something new. And starting in the early 1900s, there started to be a movement called Pentecostalism, which was very emotional. And, you know, it was really based on feeling the Holy Spirit. And the Dean, his father would have looked down on this. He would have said it was heresy. But the Dean suddenly got attracted to this movement because he felt like it was a good way to express his emotions, which he always felt like he had to keep under wraps because he always has trained himself to be a man who is very disciplined and he always feels like that showing too much emotion is a sign of weakness. So Pentecostalism, especially when the congregants are being slain in the spirit, which means they are, some of them start rolling on the floor or speaking in tongues or, you know, just shouting and dancing. And there's a lot of 
energy. And this is what the Dean likes because it's a way for him to express his repressed energy, his sadness, and I guess a lot of regrets in his life as well. This is fascinating because uh, well, not only do, do we get to, to learn more about this religious movement that I had no idea about the beginnings of it, I mean, um, before reading your story, but also we get to see the Dean in a different light. And there you have a, a wonderful illustration of one of these moments behind you um, in, in the background. And it's really interesting because we're used to seeing the Dean as, like you said, a, a disciplined person himself. And this shows a very different side of him. Definitely. And I think he also enjoys this because he sees it as an, a middle finger against his father who would have looked down on this kind of, you know, new age sort of religion. His pastor in the story, Pastor Kirk Jones, is a man who is very... I guess you can say innovative in many ways. He combines Pentecostalism with prosperity gospel, as well as some other things. And basically he also combines it with some interesting theology, which we learned about, about the baculum, which we will later discuss, which is pretty interesting. And also, you know, a theme that ties into the Dean's own insecurities about his sexuality and his lost innocence. Uh, indeed, the Dean has a lot of insecurities uh, and uh, regarding his sexuality, regarding his life, and a lot of it ties in with uh, uh, experiences from his youth. So the accident that he had and also his relationship with his family, because uh, like you said, he had a quite a, a tumultuous relationship with his father. and his mother was very passive. So in a way, this mirrors the relationship that another character of yours has with his parents, and namely Joel, only there the uh, gender roles, so, so, so to speak, are, are reversed because it is his mother that was more aggressive and uh, uh, emotionally abusive rather than his father. Exactly. So, the jo so Joel and the Dean actually do have a friendship in this story, and it will be further elaborated upon in future installments of anything in this series, because I think the Dean also plays not a significant part, but he does play a part in Joel's own story. So he will make an appearance in the Book of Joel and a lot of the other Joel-related stories. This is interesting because I never really knew how uh, how Joel got to know the Dean because we saw in, in Joel's own thoughts that, that he knows the Dean, but it is not really through Sam and through Sam's discussions about him, right? It's through his own experiences. And Joel does have a closer relationship to the Dean that Sam does, even though, uh, well, in, we would not really have imagined this a while ago. I mean, I, I had no idea before now. So what do you think they have in common uh, other than their families, because they don't know about each other's family situations, but how do they relate in, in the story? Well, they meet at a museum and Joel is the youngest museum volunteer member at the antiquity group. So basically they are doing research on a lot of old artifacts, historical stuff. And 
you know, the, the dean is actually very surprised and also impressed that such a young person would join this group of mostly older people. Most of them are retirees around his age. So <laughs> he was surprised to see someone in their 20s joining. So this is how they start striking up a conversation. And he's actually very pleasantly surprised by the depth of Joel's knowledge, particularly about what the dean calls the Old Testament prophecies. Oh yeah, that's true. It's it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in this way that it is a preoccupation mostly for older people because maybe someone younger would prefer something more dynamic in a way. And it's also interesting to see that Joel has sort of moved on from his more rebellious years in his, uh, you know, late teenage years when he was very, uh, you know, loud and into debating. He, he still is into that, but he has also been, uh, I think, uh, reconciliating with his younger and more silent self, right, with, with the work in the museum that he does. Mm -hmm, exactly. And obviously, in this kind of scenario, he can't really debate with anyone because they're mostly older people, and it would be very strange to suddenly start debating with them. Yeah, that's true. And so Joel is here, the kind of person and the kind of young man that the dean would really admire because we were we were talking in uh, uh, previous podcasts about you know someone like uh, Tom being uh, uh, the dean's kind of model student you know but now we we also see Joel in a different context not as a student but still as someone that the dean can appreciate. Mm -hmm, definitely I think he admires both of them I think for different reasons I think for Tom, he admires how he is very well-rounded. He is a very good student as well as being, you know, a top athlete, which the Dean himself used to be before his accident. So he actually kind of sees him as a representation of his own lost innocence. I think for Joel, he mostly admires his intellect and dedication to research, which he hasn't really seen in most people, especially not someone significantly younger than himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and, and especially not really outside of, uh, you know, the, uh, outside of his students. So not, not really in an academic context. Exactly. Yeah. So he's surprised to see anyone doing academic stuff outside of the university. Indeed. So uh, Joel is one character that has been able to, to change a lot and correct a lot of his flaws. Do you think the Dean would appreciate that if he knew? And would he also want to, to change things in his life in the, same, in the same vein that Joel did? I think the Dean would appreciate it that Joel was able to change many of his flaws. But as for himself, the Dean knows what flaws he has, I think, but he's also deathly scared of changing because I think he fears the kind of emotions that he would experience if he realized that he was wrong for the past, you know, 50 years. That's true. In the case of someone as old as the Dean is now, it is indeed scary to think that, you know, you've, you've wasted a lot of your life and that you've, uh, you should have changed certain things in your life and you would have lived better. So it's not really the same as at the Joel and who still has his life ahead of him and making some changes will, will affect his future for the better. And 
indeed for for the dean this kind of realization would be more tragic i think that it is rather doris who makes this kind of realization so late in her life isn't she yes to some degree but i would say that she's also kind of doing it as a form of escapism just like you know the dean is throwing himself headlong into pentecostalism and getting slain in the spirit as a form of escapism because I don't think he actually believes that, you know, in a lot of the stuff that the church teaches, I think he just goes along with it and he pretends to know about it and to really care about it because it's part of his identity at this point. What else does he have but this? And he knows it so well. Mm, that's very true. So the Dean, as we have discussed before, is physically impotent. So uh, do you think that if he were to be cured overnight, was he, was still, would he still have these emotional barriers? Because we know that he, he doesn't really enjoy sexual intimacy. So. Yes, I would say that he would still have these issues because in one part of the novelette, we see that he thinks about his doctor who told him that he should have fully recovered by the, you know, from the accident decades ago you know it there's something else that's stopping him from regaining at least some of his potency not all of it right because you know he has been damaged because of his spine act spinal cord injury so he does i mean it's not really possible to be 100 normal again but then he does realize that he should be a little bit better off than he is now and i think he kind of realizes not without some pain or some embarrassment that he does have a mindset that's not congruent to recovering from these kind of things. And that he's the kind of person who is comfortable in, in being like this. He doesn't want to be someone who is living at 100%. He wants to be living at maybe 50% or 60%. So he doesn't have that pressure of expectations. That's true. So how else do you think this emotional barrier manifested in, in relation to his wife? Um, I think in relation to his wife, I think he prefers to do everything that looks good on the surface, like remembering all of her anniversaries, her birthdays and everything. And I think the problem is that they never really had a connection that was anything deeper than just friendship or, you know, being really close friends at church. Because the thing that really ties them together is that they are both really religious and really part of the church community but outside of that they don't really have anything in common and they're not particularly good at talking about their emotions or or you know talking about their expectations I think one thing that Doris and the dean suffer from is fear of expectations so they just conform to rules and societal expectations but they don't want to be subject to an individual's expectations which can be very hard to read or extremely hard to accomplish but societal expectations are more diffuse in a way so it's easier to meet those goalposts rather than think about what a specific person wants for you that's a great point. So this is one thing that they have in common. And in a way, it is a thing that has kept them together, right? Because if, if they didn't care so much about pools and appearances, maybe they would have been, you know, divorced long ago. That's true. But they're not an abusive couple or anything like that. I think they do have a strong confluence in one way. It is through religion. But as the Dean kind of realizes, it's rather hollow. And this is why he and Doris don't 
like to spend a lot of time together sometimes and spending too much time together is awkward. Yeah, that's true because they would have to, to really openly talk about things and they, they want to avoid discussing their doubts and thoughts and expectations, like you said. And as we see the Dean's thoughts progress in relation to the events of the day, which is described in the novelette, we can assume that Doris has her own kind of thoughts, her own kind of doubts that, that she wants to escape discussing with her husband, right? And this is why they go their separate ways often in, in their life. So, so, so they have the church in common, but otherwise they have different preoccupations. Exactly, yeah. And maybe they prefer it that way because they're people who are not, I guess you can say, emotionally intelligent, nor are they good at articulating why they feel certain way and why they feel like something is missing because they don't have the tools to learn what that is. So in a way, even though they do feel uncomfortable, they don't know how to express it to each other or to anyone at all. This is very realistic because I feel that there are a great number of people with the exact same issue. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I would say so. And, you know, even though they are close to 70 now, it feels like they haven't made a lot of progress. And this kind of scares them, but at the same time, they're scared of finding out the truth, right? So it's kind of like a double bind. That's true. Do you think that they they just uh, console themselves with the idea that, you know, this is what life is like, nothing is perfect, no one is really happy, so I guess everybody just has the same issues. Mm-hmm. Everybody's really like us. So. Exactly, especially the older you get. That's true. So, so they, they don't really wish they were more communicative or something, so, or, or expressing their feelings better. I think that, um, as, as I see, they are well, not really content, but they think that this is how it is, and perhaps everyone else is like that. Exactly. I mean, they haven't seen any other models, right? I mean, I guess Doris's parents, they were normal, they were not abusive or anything, but they were also very conventional. And of course, the Dean, his parents were very dysfunctional. There was definitely no, nothing like that. I mean, they were just yelling at each other all the time, mostly his father yelling at his mother, telling her to do stuff. So, I mean, I guess he would say, my life is an improvement over my father's. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So he is, he, is he someone who accepts that his life is, is the way he is, since he, he believes that he is quite damaged, he is too old to change? I think so. And the Dean, he doesn't know how to change. He doesn't have the capacity in a way to change because not only is he afraid as we previously talked about, but he doesn't have the tools to, he never felt any strong friendships in his life. So he has no idea how to have a strong relationship with his wife, who I guess, if you look at it from a more objective standpoint, wasn't really the best person for him. Right. Because I mean, she checked all the right boxes and vice versa for her, but was there really anything that, really tied them together it just felt like it was done out of convention and convenience and also the thing that they have in common is exactly this uh, uh this inclination towards 
convention. So in a way, they accentuated each other's flaws. Exactly. Yes. So I guess in a way, after they got married, it's harder for them to break out of convention. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And this is really interesting to think about how their how their relationship progresses with people who, uh, on on the out on the surface, have so many things in common, and and they have a really good life because they have a good social position and everything, but. Even if they are, they do not have a, a tumultuous relationship, and they do get along well. But then there is a lot more to it. There's definitely a lot more to it, and I think, I guess, it's a little bit off topic. But this is what Sam also thinks about because I think he fears being tied down to someone who, on the surface, has a lot in common with him. For example, she might like act. You know, being theatrical and all of that, but that does not mean in any way that they will have a good, satisfying relationship. It might end up being like the Dean and Doris. I guess having the relationship that the Dean and Doris have would really be a nightmare for Sam. It would be, and okay, I mean, he doesn't know about the Dean and Doris having such a relationship, but I think he knows that there are couples like that, and he doesn't want that. So he wants to take time to think about what he actually wants and how you can get this kind of compatibility. Because sometimes it's not about shared interests. I mean, the Dean and Doris have so many <laughs> shared things in common, but it still doesn't work. That's true. That's true, and and in Sam's. Perspective: Who who wants to do so many out of the ordinary things? Who think that this this kind of relationship is so is so boring? But then uh, he also thinks that the dean is a boring person, so he wouldn't be surprised if he learned that this is what his relationship with his wife is. That's true. And if anything, I think he would feel a bit bad for the dean. And he's like, "Well, that's what you get when you are like this, right? When your personality is like this, this is what you get." <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. This although the dean really has come a long way from being that antagonistic person. I mean, I guess with Sam, he still is that kind of person, but now we get to see a different side of him. Definitely, I would say that. Do you think the dean is an anti-hero? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. This is a good question. Um. Well, I guess he could be seen as such because, I mean, especially if we think about him in relationship to Sam as the uh, uh, as 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 the main character of the story. So, uh, yeah, I guess compared to him, the dean would be an, an anti-hero. But then, within his own story, he's rather a tragic hero. I would say so, yes. I think in Sam New York, he's just a cameo. I wouldn't even say he's an anti-hero. <laughs> I guess so. He's someone that Sam always complains about. <laughs> exactly. But after Sam leaves law school, I don't think he's going to think about the dean at all. Yeah, that's true. Or maybe he will forever think about him as, as a symbol of conventionalism. <laughs> <laughs> true and he's like rejecting everything that he stands for yeah that's true and, and this is very reductionist of sam but of course we cannot blame him because he doesn't know everything about the dean that we get to know but then yeah in, in, in sam's mind he's really a one trait character <laughs> <laughs> yes 
So about the Dean's sexuality, there is the dark secret that me and Tete and you have been referring to since last week. Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, we know that he is, uh, he is physically impotent, but then, uh, well, it is more complex than this, isn't it? So what does he find sexually stimulating? He, he likes the idea of being forced to be tickled by something or someone, preferably not a person because he always feels awkward when there's someone witnessing him doing this because he feels like it's abnormal. So he doesn't want to be judged. So I guess he does have this fantasy. I mean, he does it to himself. So, but then he has a fantasy where it's not himself doing it. It's some kind of supernatural power or machine, not a person. It makes a lot of sense, actually, because this is a person who has not had fulfilling sexual relationships in his entire life because his accident happened when he was 15 and he was not sexually active. And then all of his relationships and his, uh, you know, erotic thoughts and plans for his erotic encounters have been shaped by this by this dysfunction that he has. So it does make sense that he would veer towards a different kind of erotic fulfillment, not something, uh, well, the, the, the usual, what, what would be expected. So, and it also makes a lot of sense that he would not find a lot of fulfillment in the idea of being with someone else directly because, well, you mentioned before that uh, he finds uh, expressing emotions and erotic feelings very awkward. So, of course, in his fantasies, he wants to be rid of that awkwardness, avoid it. Mm -hmm, exactly. So it can only be achieved without another person. And also because it's not sexual in the conventional sense, he doesn't have to be judged for his inadequacy, which is his, you know, his impotence. Do you think that Doris was ever judgmental towards him or that he perceives her as having been judgmental? Um, I don't think she was judgmental and he doesn't really think she was judgmental per se, but I think he fears disappointment and awkwardness more than anything. I mean, even if it was judgmental, I think he would just put it in the same, you know, the same pile of feelings as you know, feeling embarrassed and feeling inadequate. I think for the Dean, the worst thing is feeling inadequate because he had no control over this. Oh, that's very true. That's very true. And well, the, Doris knows what, what happened to him, right, in, in his youth. Yes, she did, but only after they got married. Because before he was saying, you know, I'm a very modest and godly man. We're not gonna talk about anything sexual until we get married. But even after they got married, he really kind of stretched it out. And, you know, they, they got married and during their honeymoon, he didn't talk about sex at all. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course, it makes sense that he would avoid the subject because he didn't know how to approach it. And honestly, he didn't really know how it would play out, right? Because he had not actually tried it before with, with a woman. So, of course, he would avoid it. And he... and. Surely, I don't think she found it particularly out of the ordinary because she was very sheltered herself uh, from, from this point of view. 
Yes, exactly. You know, she was taught to be very modest and not think about these things. And, you know, if she prayed enough or, you know, she did all the godly things, you know, that were required of her as a Christian with, you know, very Christian parents, you know, she thought it would just fall into place. Um, there's a quote in the novelette where, I, where, you know, Ben, the dean, expresses a lot of anger towards how he and Doris were kind of stri- strung along their entire lives by the, the, the idea in their church that if you did this, you're going to get this as a reward because you've been good. But then they've done all of these things and they haven't been rewarded at all. That's very true. On the surface, they were. So for, for people seeing them from the outside, they would think, oh, yes, of course, look, they, they were so righteous and pious and everything. And now they have such a, a happy marriage and a good position in society. But then they know that, that they are not really happy. I mean, neither of them is. And of course, we can assume that Doris has the same kind of doubts as you mentioned before. Do you think that Doris would have wanted or would want more excitement in the couple life? So more, uh, she wishes uh, that Ben was more uh, demonstrative in a sexual way, mostly. I think at the beginning, yes, but then she realizes that she can't change him because this is a part of his personality. And I think she kind of questions why she married him at times, just like you know he questions why he married her. I think she thinks that just like the Dean, she married him because he checked off all the right boxes and he was really close friends with her dad. So she was like, oh, this seems like a safe choice because she was so sheltered that she never really had a lot of friends outside of church. And, you know, he seemed like he was very well educated, very respectful, and he was close with her church friends and her dad. So it just felt like it was falling into place because all of her life, um, as she was raised by very Christian parents, she was always taught that things will just fall into place. She wasn't really taught to really seek anything other than, you know, being godly and just reading the Bible and doing good things, but not really to look for things for herself. Yes, and not to to look for the nuances, you know, and she was also inexperienced when it came to relationships. So maybe she thought that, okay, if, if you don't argue with your husband and he's not abusive and you have a, a good life, you know, you know, material and spiritual way, then that this is all there is, right? I mean, what else can go wrong? Right. And I think she doesn't really feel attracted to him, but she doesn't realize that she doesn't until maybe she's ironically in her forties. So by then it feels almost too late to do anything. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. So their, their way to express emotion, um, the deans especially, is in church, right? So the, this, is the, um, oh, this is the place where he expresses emotion because we said that it's not in the couple life and he's not really a very enthusiastic and demonstrative person otherwise. So it, it is the church that brings this, this out in him. Yes, definitely. I think before when he was at the Presbyterian church for most of his life, he was still more strict. But after joining this um, Pentecostal uh, congregation, he did start to express more emotions. And it was at this point of his life, he started feeling more doubts about things. So I think he used 
um, the energy that he got from the doubts and he expressed it during, you know, the Pentecostal sessions. Okay, I see. I see that uh, I was about to ask exactly this. So how does, how do his doubts uh, fit with, uh, with this? Because in, in a way he is very immersed in the, in the religious service and in the beliefs, but at the same time he doubts a lot of things. Exactly. I think he thinks that doubting is also part of being a Christian because, you know, sometimes people aren't 100% faithful and it's part of humanity's sinful nature as that, as the pastors have taught them. But at the same time, I don't think he feels guilt or shame from doubting things. He just thinks like, this is how things are. You doubt things, but then you just do them anyways, because it's the right thing to do. That makes sense because that is part of the journey of, of discovering God and spirituality, right? Because you, it, it, it's not really about taking everything for granted and taking everything literally, right? It's, it's more about how you apply it to your own existence. Mm -hmm. And I think the Dean, he, he thinks that even if everything in Christianity may not be true, what if he dies and, you know, there is nothing after his life, then at least he tried, right? Because he tried to do something that was good because he, he's not a Christian just because his parents are. He's a Christian because he decided to. He is a born again Christian. So this means that he believes that he's a Christian, not because he was baptized or because his parents were, but because he made the conscious decision to accept Jesus as his savior. This is very interesting. And uh, I love this approach because it, um, it's a very different approach from, from that of the other characters. Yes. And this is mostly um, a 20th century thing, the whole born again and Pentecostalism movement, which is combined in Pastor Kirk's church, Kirk Jones church as a form of non-denominational Protestant Christianity, which draws influences from evangelicalism, uh, Pentecostalism, and a little bit of prosperity gospel. The latter bit of which I would say kind of contributes to the Dean and Doris's escapism fantasy. It fit them really well with yes. how they their lives and their beliefs. Exactly. Because in prosperity gospel, they think that if you pray hard enough and you're you know, a good Christian, God will give you things. And I think the Dean and Doris are kind of frustrated by prosperity gospel at times because they did a lot of right things, but you know, they were not rewarded. You know, the Dean still struggles with his sexuality and still has these problems, you know, emotionally, but I guess he can say, I guess they kind of rewarded us because I know we could be homeless, we could be dead or something. So we're not completely not rewarded, right? It's just that I guess we're rewarded in a way that's not really what we necessarily wanted. That's true. So they, well, they, they, they just have to appreciate what they have and, you know, this is it. Exactly. Do you have uh, some quotes to share with us from your novelette? Yes, I do. I actually have a, a, a lot of them. And I think, let me see. Yeah, they're actually really fun. I actually really enjoyed writing these ones. And I think they could provide a really great insight into what is waiting for you guys if you once you get the chance to read the novelette. And I've, I, I've enjoyed reading it. Yes, yeah, it, it was pretty fun. So the first one is, isn't it obvious? a sinister voice whispered in his head. It's because you don't have much time left, Ben. 
You're six years away from turning 70. It's already over and you know it. He had lived a good long life, despite and perhaps in spite of all the challenges God had decided to throw his way. He had risen above the hypocritical, inane dysfunction as exemplified by his abusive fuck of a father, married a pious, intelligent, and loyal woman, obtained a doctorate in ethics and religious studies from a prestigious university, and above all, attained the esteemed position of the Dean of the Faculty of Law at Ambrose College, one of the top universities in this country. Indeed, so this is about the Dean being at, at an old age and um, thinking about the good sides of his life. Mm-hmm. And here he talks about the bad sides. But yet something was missing. He bit his lower lip as he pondered this unnerving question. The more he looked into it, the more obvious it became to him that many things were missing from his life. Perhaps he was just too idealistic. That had always been one of his flaws, hadn't it? Or rather, his way of giving the middle finger to his coarse hypocrite of a father. Nah, he had never been idealistic. It was just his way of clinging on to a state of innocence that had never really existed. And here is Ben being more cynical. <laughs> yes. In a way, he was the anti-Adam, seeking to go back to the age of innocence before Eve was tempted by the serpent to take a bite into that luscious fruit of knowledge. Before they knew good and evil, Adam and Eve had lived a blissful existence. If only they had listened to God. Rules made things so much easier, Ben thought to himself as he joined in the chorus of worshipers who were now screaming God's name, some with tears rolling down their faces. A woman in the pew in front of him was slain in the spirit, falling on her face as she shouted, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Praise his name, for he is good! Hallelujah! And here he talks about his father and how much he dislikes him. His father was an alcoholic, although he preached against the evils of alcohol. In the same vein, he was a serial adulterer despite constantly railing against sexual temptations and worldliness. He preached peace when he was valiant. He, he preached chastity when he was consumed by lust. He preached patience when he was anything but. And above all, he preached forgiveness when he held, the deep, he held deep grudges and constantly brought up small mistakes from the past so he could attack him and his mother for their sinful nature. The hypocrisy of his father. <laughs> is he a bit like Earl, the Earl Dorman in Aiden's story? Yes, yes. So uh, Ben and Edgar have also have this thing in common, uh, disliking their fathers for their hypocrisy and trying not to be like them. Mm -hmm. Very true. We will explore this in future role plays. Yes. So it only made sense for Ben to dive headlong into rules, ethics, and the logic behind rules and laws. As he grew older, he realized that the law, particularly the common law tradition of the United States, was anything but black and white. Since the common law was based on precedent, that is, on the decisions made by previous judges, many technicalities and traditions found in the law were much more ambiguous 
than the public at large would assume. In reality, law, just like life, could be just as multifaceted and frighteningly gray as life itself. This was how Ben started getting into ethics, particularly Old Testament law, to discover for himself God's intended order and how Old Testament rules could be applied to modern concepts of morality. I really like this part in the story where uh, Ben discusses uh, the similarities between human law, the, the laws of the state, and uh, the laws of God, and the relationship he sees between them, and how he got to like the both of them. Mm-hmm. And it also shows that he's very uncomfortable with shades of gray. He prefers things to be black and white. So this is why he's so much into rules. Exactly. And into escapism as well. But didn't God create us in his own image? Ben laughed inwardly. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe religion was all just a cover for the insanity that was life. There was no inherent meaning to anything, and religion was just a human animal's attempt to understand that which could not be understood. So here, the, uh, ben, ben, who is the dean, he is questioning religion itself and the concepts of God. Yeah, so he's not as, um, as uh, uh, he, do he doesn't look, he doesn't seem to have those definite answers that he seemed to have, you know, especially when talking to Sam. Definitely not. And I think he tries to fool himself into thinking that he does have answers, but in reality, I don't think he does. Before the fall, his fall from Buck, which is his horse, not Adam and Eve's fall from God's favor. He had been little more than a child, an incredibly sheltered, ignorant boy. Who knew such a simple injury to his backbone would have such terrible consequences for the rest of his life? At the time, he had only been 15 years old. He had been tall and strong for his age, but he was still terribly naive, particularly when it came to women, and this was, no, it, this was in no small part due to his parents' staunch conservatism. And then this is how Ben describes his sexual paraphilia and his sexuality. And then there was his little secret. No, not a mistress, no. Nothing conventional like that. It was something rather odd. Since he derived a little pleasure and a lot of embarrassment and frustration from sexual intercourse with his wife, he preferred to indulge himself in feet-tickling sessions with his feather duster. During this, these sessions, he blindfolded himself to stimulate, simulate a fantasy he long had of being forced by a machine or some kind of spiritual power to undergo, quote, tickle sessions. This was a great way to discuss a foot fetish, <laughs> definitely. And, and what lies behind it, right? Yeah, so he talks a little bit more about his, why he has this. It was really the sensation of losing control that he was after. Sorry, it was really the sensation of losing control that he was after during these sessions. With this feeling came spurts of genuine sexual arousal and pleasure, although these like his weak erections, were fleeting, particularly now in his old age. 
shame, of course, the reductio ad absurdum of everything and everyone in this goddamn meaningless chunk of life called, uh, chunk of time called life. Where had this worthless emotion came from? What was this, et- what was the etiology of this emotion? Shame in relation to his paraphilia, right? Yes. And shame that, you know, his life turned out this way because he has an inkling of a feeling that it could have been better if he made better choices. Right. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how shame is related to fear now. Fear. Fear was what drove a stake through what, if, what could have been a much more enjoyable marriage. He and Doris had had a great marriage in many aspects. They enjoyed each other's presence, had the same spiritual goals and beliefs, and constantly sought to better themselves in society. But it all just felt like a contrived and forced at times, he had to admit. He could only see life from his own perspective and could only imagine, quote, perhaps inaccurately, what life was like for others but he doubted that he and Doris ever experienced even an inkling of what Joe and Malka had. And of course it is frightening to think about it when he is uh, six years from being 70, as as he says, right? Because realizing that your your life was based on, you know, superficial things, it is, it it definitely justifies what he talks about fear here. Mm-hmm, exactly. And he just, just kind of feels pathetic. And in the last part of the novelette, which I have yet to write, he will be having a small trip to Albany where he grew up and he may bump into some people he hasn't seen for nearly 40 years. It will be interesting to learn more about his early years through this and uh, well, in, about the way that he sees, the way in which he sees those years now as as a grown-up, as an elderly person, too. Mm-hmm, definitely. And how the town itself has changed, and maybe he will be visiting some of the landmarks he remembers from his childhood years, such as his father's church. Oh, that's true. That's true. And 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 the place where the accident happened, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. And how it put him off sports and riding after that. Yeah, and maybe this is a chance for him to to think, even though it will be a, a, a kind of a tragic fantasy, to think about how his life might have turned out were it not for uh, for the accident and for his father who was in the way he was. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of things to explore. And I think the final part of this novelette will be kind of tragic, but... I guess it will be a good ending in a way. I guess he does have some kind of closure to some of the problems that were raised in the first four parts of the novel, but some things will still not have any kind of closure because it's like real life. You know, there are no answers to every question that is raised. Definitely. It, it, it's more like our impression and interpretation of it and the, the conclusions that we draw than actual answers. Mm-hmm. And yes, the thing about Joel and Malka at the very end, I just wanted to say that I think one of the reasons why it provokes such a response in the Dean is because the Dean realizes that even if he was given the chance to relive his life again, would he experience something like that? And he thinks no, because 
he's not someone who has that kind of innocence. And he thinks that you have to be somewhat innocent or have a different kind of personality from what he has in order to experience a profound relationship or even friendship. And there's something about the Dean, like, and he realizes this about himself that he just can't get close to anyone, no matter how he tries. And even if he does, there's always this kind of fear or like anxiety or something holding him back that makes it not completely enjoyable for him. So he kind of bemoans that he never had it. But then at the same time, he realizes even if he went back in time, he probably still couldn't get it. That's very true. And even though Joel did seem to have a lot of anxiety and to have some things in common with the Dean and also, uh, you know, toxic models for romantic relationships in his family, he managed to, to overcome it because his personality is different. Mm-hmm, exactly. And the Dean wonders why he always had the personality type of a dead fish, in, in other words. I mean, there's something about him that just doesn't enjoy enjoy being vulnerable. But I think maybe Joel is more open to that, at least from how the Dean, how he perceives it. Because the Dean himself, he's not open and he fears someone knowing him like that. You know, he prefers people to know the surface because it's easier for both of them, he feels. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. So he is much more afraid of being seen as vulnerable than Joel is. Mm-hmm, exactly. And this is why his sexual fantasies also, in a way, are fantasies of vulnerability, because this is something that he doesn't allow himself to manifest in, in other circumstances. Right. And it's also a kind of innocent thing, too. You know, it's innocent in the way that it's not sexual at all. It's almost like a childish fantasy. That's true. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why the Dean has these kind of preferences and he does feel ashamed of it, but he realizes at his age, there's not really anything he could do. Even if he became cured of his impotence at age 64, what can he do? Definitely, definitely. This has been a really interesting conversation and thank you so much for sharing quotes from, from the novelette. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, it was a pleasure to share them, especially since, you know, I experienced so much joy and a lot of excitement while writing this because, you know, I think I learned a lot about the Dean and a lot about all my characters in general. It's not just the Dean. It's kind of like thinking about what kind of themes I want to explore with my characters in the future as well, not just the Dean. That's true. This was really enlightening. Yes, thank you so much. This was a great interview. Thank you. Thank you as well. Bye. Goodbye.